Welcome to the Metaverse Podcast. My name is Noah Kravitz. This is episode eight. Coming up on the program, Ethan Wu from FT.com. Ethan is a financial reporter with Financial Times. And as you'll hear in a moment, he's incredibly knowledgeable, very well-spoken, and patient enough to answer some of my very entry-level questions about finance and markets and how cryptocurrencies really work. We get into the utility of cryptocurrency beyond as a vehicle for speculative investments, including what it means for a currency to be censor-proof. We also talk about how central banks and financial markets work, including the relative value of cash versus other forms of assets, and how all of this is shaping the future of digital currencies. And then we get into blockchain heists and hacks a little bit, talking about how and why various blockchains are targets for the sort of half-billion-dollar thefts we've seen multiple times over the past year or so. I actually met Ethan through his writing partner at FT, an old college friend of mine, Rob Armstrong. Shouts to Rob. Thank you for the introduction. Rob co-authors FT's Unhedged Colin with Ethan. And uh, if you are into finance, I recommend Unhedged. It's a newsletter about finance and markets. It's very sharp and very well written. Again, highly recommend it if finance is your bag. You can sign up for Unhedged at ft.com slash unhedged. With that, let's get to it. Here's Ethan Wu on the Metaverse Podcast. All right, Ethan Wu is here. Ethan is a financial reporter at Financial Times, FT.com, and the co-author of Unhedged, a weekday newsletter covering the world of markets and finance. Uh, Ethan's co-author of Unhedged is an old college friend of mine, because that's how these podcasts work, Rob Armstrong. So shout out to Rob for introducing me to Ethan. Ethan, thank you for coming on the Metaverse podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Noah. So we were talking a little bit before we hit record about the best way to get into this conversation about cryptocurrency and uh, digital currencies and finance and, and wherever this takes us. And I really liked your suggestion of um, going back to this kind of uh, watershed cultural moment, which was the Super Bowl of this past year. And uh, I think the line you suggested was, um, hey, Larry David's saying I should get in on crypto. Is that a good idea? Should I? Um, so let's get to it from there. I wanted to have you on the show because um, in talking about the metaverse and Web3 and all these things being built on the blockchain, Money, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, whatever coin, obviously a big part of it, but it's kind of hard to separate, you know, the, the hype from what's real and, you know, what people who are, are speculating in these giant headline grabbing risky investments are doing versus what somebody like me might need to know now and going forward about crypto. So I'm going to bring it back and turn it over to you. Um, I mean, should I listen to Larry David? Do I need to get in on crypto right now? Yeah, I think the Super Bowl was such a big moment in crypto's coming of age in the last couple of, of years and months. And if you're someone who has heard about this in you know little drips over the years, and then you suddenly see someone who's you know show you watch if you were in a Curve Your Enthusiasm or, or any of his other uh, shows on your TV, you know during during the Super Bowl saying buy this stuff, maybe you actually consider it. And look, I'm not here to say that no one should trade crypto. If you want to trade crypto and you have a high risk appetite and you're you know, happy with uh, something going up 20% and down 
no problem. That's up to you. Uh, you should know that you're going to pay a lot of taxes on it. You should know that you can lose a lot of money. You should know that there are there are a lot of scams out there. There is a lot of hype out there. Um, but fundamentally, at the end of the day, if you like doing risky stuff, that's you know it, it, the American financial system is set up for you to you know bet your money on speculative stuff. Uh, what I would say though is is that I think the crypto space in in general um, is very filled with hype. Uh, but it also includes a lot of genuine innovation going on. And that's what makes this, I think, so difficult to parse is that it's it's both, right? It's never just one or the other. And you end up getting a situation in crypto where you'll have half the people you talk to saying, hey, you got to get in on this right now. It's so super exciting. It's the future of finance. And then you have the other half uh, of the conversation basically telling you this whole thing, you know, a Ponzi scheme, a scam, and so on and so forth. And they're both right in a certain sense about different elements of the space. And I think, you know, what I try to do in my writing about crypto is to approach it with a certain amount of balance and try to say, listen, all new technology is filled with with garbage. Is this worse garbage than previous ways of new technology that has come before? And, you know, I think in some ways it is because the Internet uh, has evolved and become this this ubiquitous communication system that, that we all use. And a lot of what happens in crypto develops on the Internet. There and there's also such a low barrier to entry in creating a crypto project. Anyone can make an NFT and, and you know sell it to you. There is a lot of uh, there is a lot of um, hype out there. There are a lot of scams out there, and people should be careful. Um, I had a moment just now where I was imagining um, the uh, pension manager for a public school system, like with with two things on his whiteboard with the headline, which is worse, garbage, and one was crypto <laughs> and one was meme stonks. You know, and I'm like, all right. All of these people who've been public school teachers for 40 years and their futures depend on it, which is less garbage for me to invest in. I mean, am yeah. I, am I, is that a, a fair comparison? Just in terms of the trading aspect, looking at, you know, uh, an appetite for risk and are you going to put that into a, a high risk stock versus, you know, a, a high risk token, crypto token? Like, is that a fair comparison to draw? I'm really glad you brought up meme stocks because I think that is a good comparison point here. And with any investment, you should know what makes this investment go up and what makes this investment fall. And I think the common factor between the two categories that you mentioned is fundamentally about hype and about communities that are built around that hype. And I think that's an important distinction. Uh, there's always hype when there's a new like sneaker drop, when there's a new album that comes out. Hype is a natural part of the product process. Like th- this is something that companies understand. They right. try to build it with advertising. There's something wrong with hype. I, I think what's different about crypto and, and to uh, in a similar way with meme stocks is there have been these kind of self-conscious internet communities that have built up around hyping other people about your asset or hyping one another about kind of a shared collective project. And you see this if you venture into any of the crypto forms on the internet, which are, um, you know, have their own vocabulary and have their own culture. I would say in part to be intentionally obscure to outsiders so that it's a little bit harder to decode what's going on. But if you read into it, a lot of what you'll see is people reassuring themselves, hey, this is a good investment. Hey, we should get excited about this. Hey, this project is going to change the world. Hey, this meme stock is going to go to the moon. There's a lot of mutual padding of backs going on in, in those communities. And, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a very interesting, like, sociological phenomenon to observe. I don't know if it's it's necessarily a smart investment, of, unless, of course, you enjoy it, it's fun for you, or you're, you just want to see where this thing goes, and you're happy to, you know, put some money up to lose. 
Um, I think that's all fine. And, and you know, I, I know some people that have, that have made some money in this space. But of course, people that make money are going to be a lot more likely to talk about the money they've made than people that have lost money, right? There's an asymmetry here. And so, you know, if your friend tells you, hey, I made $5,000, I just would not assume that that's representative, especially because one thing we've seen is a lot of cryptocurrencies um, have been climbing uh, for, for many years. And recently they've become uh, what people have found is called range bound, which is that there's a top level and a bottom level, and they tend to fluctuate between those two levels a lot and not really go below the bottom level and not really go above the top level. Uh, no, this could all change. Crypto is very weird, but it does look like for now that the sort of exponential growth phase of crypto uh, is over. And that's what I find interesting about the Larry, uh, the, the Larry David ad and the Super Bowl ads you mentioned earlier, which is that there's a lot of this rhetoric about, um, you know, don't miss out. It's not too late. What if it is too late? I think that's an important question that, yes, it's true with hindsight. If you got in on Bitcoin in 2013 or if you got, you know, in, in on Amazon early or any investment that grows exponentially. Um, yes, you could have gotten it early. But listen, by the time you, a person who's not into tech, let, let's just assume that's the person we're talking about, have heard about it, you're probably too late, right? Just to, to speak very frankly. That's and a, I think the story people, of my own investment uh, history, but that's, that's another topic for <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's okay, right? Like there's a strange culture around like shaming people for being stupid and not seeing it early. I, I read that a little bit cynically. I think that's kind of a way of like, you know, psychologically needling people into buying things that they against their better judgment. Um, so I would just, you know, with this sort of stuff, unless you're doing it for fun, which again, fine, um, you know, do it with kind of a cold-eyed, detached analysis and, and don't get caught up in a lot of the emotionality that surrounds this sort of stuff. So if this is too much of, um, a, you know, sort of a side tangent rabbit hole kind of thing, that's fine. I don't, I don't want to turn this into a uh, stock market explainer uh, podcast mm -hmm. here. But to go back for a second to, um, you know, that kind of analogy that I guess I brought up about uh, meme stocks and, and crypto speculation, I, I'm, not a, uh, I'm not a sophisticated investor or I don't have a sophisticated understanding of how markets work. But I've kind of always wondered, particularly as I've gotten older and, and I've worked in tech for a long time and that kind of stuff, um, how much these days are stock prices, and I'm overgeneralizing, but stock prices tied to actual performance of the company versus other factors, you know, like hype or like um, mutual, you know, mutual back padding, like you said. And, and I'm asking that specifically thinking about cryptocurrencies. And, and I want to ask you in a minute kind of more about like the potential actual utility of cryptocurrencies and digital currencies going forward. But is there, I mean, is this kind of the moment that we're in right now where um, investment markets or things that you speculate on are tied, you know, more into, uh, less into, I guess, what you might call fundamentals, right? Like, like how much profit did the company drive this year versus these other factors that are actually what's, what's driving prices up and down? I think it's worth saying that we've just come out of a pandemic, right? And, and this was, you know, a, an unprecedented, uh, you know, event in, in recent history. It's a, it's a once in a hundred year type of event. And things got really weird in financial markets for about two years. Um, and you can see this if you look at, if you look at the graph of a lot of, uh, you know, uh, tech stocks, other than, you know, Google and the big ones, but some mid-sized or smaller tech stocks, or you look at 
a lot of the meme stocks or a lot of the cryptocurrencies, what you'll see is from, you know, maybe early 2020, maybe late 2019, uh, just this rapid shoot up in the curve. And then it starts to peak in 2021. And now it's starting to come down. And, you know, there, obviously, we never really know what causes this sort of stuff, because at the end of the day, it's just someone bought it, right? That's the real story. But we can sort of construct a story that would make sense, which is that when the pandemic hit, the uh, the US government spent a lot of money, a ton of money, and the Federal Reserve, the, the central bank of the United States, unleashed uh, unprecedented, incredible amounts of cash into the US financial system. And you know what happens when cash is plentiful is that it becomes really, really easy and really, really cheap and really, really frictionless to lend money. It become, Credit becomes uh, widely available. And a lot of people think that that's the main reason you saw kind of a coordinated run-up in a whole bunch of financial assets, um, you know, everything from houses to uh, stocks to, to crypto and meme stocks. And you know, that's changing now. The, the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates finally after uh, two years of keeping them pretty much at zero. Um, the federal government has stopped spending money. This is kind of happening all over the world. Uh, belts are tightening a little bit as we come out of the pandemic, even though there are uh, some very important and deadly residual waves uh, in, in places like China and Korea and elsewhere. Um, but we're going back to what looks like something closer to normal in financial markets, notwithstanding the fact that there is this horrific war in, in Ukraine, which has had some really bad effects on things like commodity prices. Um, but markets were very strange for about two years. And I think that there we, we all are suffer from recency bias. We all suffer from the predilection of focusing on what has just happened and what we can recall in our immediate memory. Um, but I think with a little bit of perspective, we can sort of say that the pandemic was weird. It was a bit of an anomaly. Things went a bit crazy and they're starting to normalize a little bit. Uh, now, I think what's, what's, um, you know, what's different in crypto is that uh, crypto does have a history pre-pandemic. There was a big run up and a big crash in 2017 called the crypto winter. And crypto did reemerge from a pretty cataclysmic drop in the price in 2017. And because of that uh, apparent resilience, it's attracted a lot of venture capital. Um, big names like Andreessen Horowitz are in there, but also a lot of smaller uh, venture capitalists as well. So crypto has money to play with, even as credit starts to get a little bit tighter, as interest rates start to go up a little bit. Um, I think the real test, though, is going to be if money does become more scarce in this economy, if venture capitalists uh, have a little bit less latitude to lend, what is what's the cap on growth in this system? How far can it grow uh, without a very, very concrete use case in the real world? So that's a great uh, segue. I was I was sort of mentally kind of going through a couple different uh, questions, a couple different branches to take the conversation. But let's go let's go to the real world thing. Is there a use case for cryptocurrencies in the real world um, beyond, the things that we were just talking about with speculative investments and VC investments and stuff, but kind of going forward right now, I got interested and I don't know if it was, you know, the Larry David ad or, or more the Matt Damon ad stuck out in my head um, for me. I don't know if it was that, I don't know if it was my older son saying that, you know, he wanted some Bitcoin for a, for a holiday gift, you know, last December or what it was. But at some point I investigated like, well, how does one go about buying Bitcoin? Right. And actually a lot of friction for an outsider who just wants to go do it. There's a kiosk at the grocery store and you can put some money in and you can get a receipt, but then you have to take that receipt and go online and sign up for an account 
and scan a photo of your driver's license and all that kind of stuff. And then like, where can you actually use it? And once in a while, I think the fact that I notice when I go to a, you know, the corner market that has a sign that says we take Bitcoin, it jumps out at me because it's still not an everyday kind of thing. So can you talk a little bit about the utility of cryptocurrencies in kind of our current life? And we were talking, you know, pr uh, prior to hit and record, we were talking a little bit about you know, credit cards and how credit cards have become this consumer friendly thing where you don't actually have to know how the sausage gets made. You just know you can use your visa and buy a Gatorade. Is, is there a use case like that for crypto that's coming or, or what's your take on you know, kind of the utility aspect? I would say it's very unlikely that Bitcoin becomes easier than your credit card to use. That just seems very unlikely. And that makes sense if you think about how not just Bitcoin, but uh, a whole bunch of cryptocurrencies are designed. They're designed on decentralized ledgers. So these are databases that instead of being stored on one server uncontrolled by a company, they're stored on hundreds or thousands of servers simultaneously, which all coordinate to verify each other's information. And if you think about that, it's not a very efficient way of storing data if your number one objective is to like recall the data as quickly as possible. Right. Right. Um, yeah, and so transactions you know, take time. They take they take a lot of resources. Yes. Right. And there's a lot of redundancy intentionally built into the way that blockchains work, uh, because the point of blockchain as a technology is not to be quick. It's to be extremely secure. It's to be it's to quadruple, quintuple, sextuple check every single transaction, uh, because the goal is to be trustless. That's that's the kind of lingo you'll, you'll hear is that. Um, the idea of blockchains is that nobody in the ecosystem has to trust one another in order to have a transaction. And, you know, I think the main use case that's evolved beyond what can be done with existing technology is a lot of subversion of governments. So, and, and that sounds, that sounds bad and scary. And, you know, I think sometimes it can be, but there's a lot of instances where we might feel very sympathetic. You know, for example, there, um, there was a there was a coup in Myanmar uh, uh, earlier this year where the uh, the military junta overthrew the government right. and the uh, shadow government, which previously was the democratically elected government, is using cryptocurrency to bypass the junta controlled financial system. And I think you know, as, as someone who likes democracy and thinks it's a good thing, uh, I'm very sympathetic to that. I think that that is a use of cryptocurrency that is benefiting the, the you know the Democrats, the small D Democrats in that case. But it's how, very how detached does that, from. Sorry to interrupt you, Ethan, but how does that actually work when we talk about, you know, using cryptocurrency to bypass the nation state government controlled financial system? Like, is that literally just people decide that they're going to, you know, buy and sell food or, or whatever things just using cryptocurrency and just kind of this, you know, sort of decision is made to do that instead of using, I mean, in our case, US dollars? Yeah, so I, I think the issue, it depends on the case you're talking about, but uh, just to, to generalize a little bit. And, the, and the I idea, know, for, I, I appreciate you rolling with me because I know I'm asking these broad questions that yeah. don't have universal answers. So thank you for that. Just to generalize a little bit, to give a little bit of a gloss, I, I think the, the answer would be that a lot of times, if you're against the, you know, against the regime, against the government, uh, you're not going to have access to the financial system. And then, how do you pay for things like, you know, goods uh, imports? How, how do you pay for uh, uh, services uh, from abroad, uh, military equipment, you know, food, clothing, things like that? 
Yeah. Um, you need a way to pay people and you're cut off from the financial system. And it's a little hard to just truck over a ton of cash. So yeah. these offer ways of doing, uh, cryptocurrencies offer ways of doing large value payments without any kind of uh, government intermediary or banks, which banks are very often extensions of kind of the government regulatory enforcement system. Right. Um, it's a way of bypassing a lot of that. So that's, I've given you kind of the sympathetic example of that, oh, you know, like a rebel group after a coup can use it to, you know, um, push back against the undemocratic coup government. But there's also a lot of, you know, downsides to, to a system like that, which is that this is a great technology for money laundering. Um, and, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of arguments here that, that we can get into. But the general idea is, listen, if you can do large, you know, value payments uh, without the approval of the government, well, then, you know, listen, uh, that, that's very tempting for criminals as well. Um, the, the pushback from people who are into crypto here is, well, listen, uh, Bitcoin is very traceable, uh, which it is, and I, I can get into that more if, you, if you'd like to. Um, but I, I think it, it's just worth grappling with the fact that fundamentally, if your technology is good for helping like a rebel group, for example, uh, bypass the government, it's going to be good for other actors, such as criminals who also want to bypass the government. And that's a political question, right? That we have to make a decision as, as a society, what do we want out of technology? Uh, you know, how do we want technology to influence, you know, how society works? It's a big question. I'm not going to answer it. I, I don't know if you have a better answer than me on this, but uh, <laughs> I think that we're finally starting to grapple with the fact that technology is just technology. It's just zeros and ones. And the impact on the world and the goodness and badness of it is a choice that we make as a society in terms of how we implement the technology and what practices we accept and which ones we discourage. I'm going to throw a couple terms your way and see if we can get some uh, some definitions, because I think at least one of them relates to what we were just talking about, but they've kind of been in my head. And I thought, oh, wait, I have somebody here who, who speaks well and maybe can succinctly explain these things. So DeFi, censorship-proof currency, Stablecoin, Tethercoin. Okay. Uh, DeFi, let's see if we can remember all these. <laughs> yeah, I'll, 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 I'll uh, yeah. do that work. I can do the remembering. Sure. <laughs> sure. Uh, DeFi stands for decentralized finance. And this is a space, it's, it's a bit of an umbrella term. It's a space where you have a lot of different companies that are trying to develop services that parallel the traditional financial system while not involving a middleman. And so just, just to unpack that a little bit, yeah. uh, you know, for example, if you want maybe like a home equity line of credit or like a car loan or something like that, you right. go to the bank, you say, hey, here, here's my credit score. Here's, um, you know, past bills I've paid. Uh, let, let me get a loan. And they're like, okay, we'll give it to you for 5% interest rate. Uh, pay us back by this time. That's the just basics of a traditional loan. Right. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of DeFi platforms uh, that what they'll do is instead of you approaching the bank, a central middleman, it will be actually these pools of money from lots of different people who are putting up the money. And you get the loan not from any one person, but from an algorithm that coordinates the funds from a whole bunch of people, pools them together, and it gives you your slice of it at interest rates set by the algorithm. And so this is, it's a little complicated, but you can think of it essentially the same as the original bank loan, just done by a lot of different people coordinated by a computer. So I'm guessing I'm wrong here, but isn't that computer or algorithm, or I'm thinking of the you know humans, the business entity who owns that DeFi platform, aren't they just kind of de facto the new middleman? This is a great question. And I think 
you've touched on a, a deep point, I think, about crypto, which is that I mentioned this word trustless earlier. Right? Yeah. This is a very central word in many crypto discussions that the technology should be trustless. Um, and that's a lot of what underpins the idea of decentralization as something yeah. that, that we want. Um, you know, you are still trusting something. You're trusting the code, right? You are no longer trusting a person, but you're trusting the code. And who makes the code? Well, it's people, right? And so that, you know, that puts you in a situation where if you are a computer scientist and you can go through and verify the code and read it and say, this is all kosher, or you know someone who vouches right. for it or whatever, yeah. maybe you can trust it. Uh, but if you're an ordinary person without kind of a deep technical background, a lot of this is going to be quite impenetrable for you. And that in some ways is, is by design. Um, this, is, this, this is technology that's trustless if you're extremely sophisticated. Um, and it's not trustless in the way that you might think about it in a, on a very kind of everyman day-to-day -day basis where I want to go about my life and like press buttons and I want them to work, right? We, I think, are used to services that are extremely simple, that are extremely streamlined, and frankly, are extremely idiot-proofed. Because, you know, like I'm an idiot. I, I you know, I, I messed up, uh, you know, I, I've messed up on like Uber, which is like the easiest app of all time. And <laughs> I went to the wrong location to get picked up. And like, right. this is designed to be used by, you know, like teenagers. Um, and that's how a lot of the most successful technology has, you know, rolled out, uh, in, in, you know, the, the past 10 or 20 years. Um, Crypto is a little bit different. It, it's a little bit more hostile as an environment. It's... Um, the rules of the road are there, they're in the code, but they're not there for you if you're not a highly sophisticated technologist. And there are third-party services that promise to simplify the experience for you, but then you're trusting the third party as yeah. well, and then trusting that the third party trusts the code. So yeah. it's, you know, I think it's, it's worth saying that trustless technology is not really trustless, it's just trusting different uh, types of things. Okay. Um, I'm going to keep going on my list. Censorship proof. People talk about crypto, Bitcoin, I think other coins, but being censorship proof. What does that mean in the context of a currency? The gist of it is that a transaction, once it's done, can't be stopped by any kind of authority. So if I want to pay you in, in Bitcoin, and I legitimately have the Bitcoin and you have a proper Bitcoin wallet set up, I can just send you the money and no one can stop that transaction and no one can reverse that transaction. And that is different than how the, the current financial system works. Um, if I send you money and it's a large amount of money and maybe I have some connections with, with organized crime, the bank's going to stop that. They have, uh, you know, they have a, a list of criteria that they use to flag suspicious transactions and if I set off one of their alarms, they're going to stop the payment. They're going to investigate it. They have a whole team. Uh, every bank has a department that does this. Uh, they're going to investigate whether my payment is kosher. And they have the authority to unilaterally tell me, no, you can't pay this person. Um, and so one of the big values of uh, cryptocurrency is that you don't have to worry about that. The payment's always going to go through as long as you actually legitimately have the funds that can be verified by the algorithm, the payment will go through. Um, and like I mentioned a little bit earlier, this can have good effects and can have bad effects. Yeah. But uh, fundamentally, it, 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 this is a difference. This is a real actual difference between uh, crypto as a system and the traditional financial system. Now, what about, and this may, again, this may not be relevant. There's a theme to my questions, right? Because I'm trying to relate this all to sort of my day-to-day -day layperson life. So, so bear with me. But um, some time ago, I don't know, a year ago or so, um, all of, and it wasn't actually money, but, but 
it was an asset of a sort. All of my uh, credit card rewards points were suddenly gone from my account. And so I contacted my bank. And, and then I also got a notice that like a whole slew of uh, Best Buy gift cards had been purchased and shipped to an address that wasn't mine, right? So I contacted my bank and somebody had gotten into my account and, you know, just leveraged all the points that I'd been saving up and use them to buy gift cards. And so, and so the bank, you know, talk about idiot proof and, and just sort of like the system is built on convenience. You know, the, the bank replenished my cards and they sent their team of investigators to figure out what was going on and that kind of thing. Would that be possible in a censorship proof system? Not without a third party service. And I think you've touched on a really important point, which is that crypto does have a lot of these new elements. It's in a certain way trustless. It's it's censorship uh, resistant or censorship proof. But that that's not free, right? And right. the cost is often going to be uh, it's going to be slower. It's going to have a lot fewer fail safes. It's going to be a lot less idiot proof. It's going to be hard to use in a lot of ways. Now, people have recognized this in crypto for a long time. And so a lot, there are a lot of third-party services and there are more and more each day, I can't even keep up with all of them, that are promising to simplify the crypto experience. And they put a layer on top of the kind of fundamental Bitcoin algorithm or whatever cryptocurrency you want to talk about that says, listen, we'll handle a lot of the messy stuff for you. You just use our app or use our website and we'll take care of that for you. Um, and that's great. The issue there is you're kind of back to the, to the old financial system where you are trusting this company, which is incorporated somewhere and follows some law somewhere to handle your money, to deal with um, all of the various custody issues, regulatory issues, uh, just, just logistical issues. Um, and they do mess up. This, this happens you know, uh, <laughs> more often than you think. And you're trusting them the same way that you would trust your bank. Um, now, I think these companies would, would say, you know, we're, we're better than them. We have different values. And you know, that may be true. But I think it's important to say that these companies are not fundamentally different than the kind of old guard financial companies. They may be different in terms of you know, their, their values, their opinions, their views, their policies, but there's no difference in terms of where they sit uh, between you and the person that you're trying to pay. Yeah, there's, um, I mean, I think it's a human tendency. It's certainly a tendency that I have when I'm trying to make sense of, of something new intellectually, but I'm getting real strong, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss vibes, the deeper that I get into learning about this stuff. The, the word decentralized, decentralization has a lot of appeal to me. I'm not entirely sure why. And I sometimes kind of mentally map it out to things that maybe aren't quite right. Um, but, you know, the, the, in the time that I've been on this journey for the past few months, trying to figure out, ah, this journey as like a self-help guru that I've been on this kind of path trying to learn about, you know, all these different aspects of, of web three and, and uses of blockchain and everything, you know, this decentralized thing is there. And then at some point it ends in open sea controlling a huge majority of the NFT marketplace action. It ends in companies like Coinbase and other companies kind of tracing back to the same giant venture capitalist companies. So I don't know, there's, there's, I don't even know if this is a question to you so much as just to kind of acknowledge, like, there's this thing around decentralization that um, is very interesting and very appealing, and I think could have some real 
you know, sort of human societal benefits, particularly in certain parts of the world or certain geopolitical, you know, um, situations, right? But also then there's this big element of like, well, actually, there's still a centralized entity that's sitting between you and, you know, whoever or whatever's on the other side of the, of the transaction. It's worth saying decentralization is not a binary. It's a, it's a spectrum, right? Things are more decentralized or, or less decentralized. And a lot of companies that might be one tiny little tick less centralized than whatever traditional institution they're competing with can just use the word decentralized as their marketing tool, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, this is the idea of decentralization, I think, has that intuitive appeal that you're mentioning that, you know, it, it's sort of almost like it sounds like democracy or it feels like something that everyone can access. Right. If it's decentralized, it, it must right. be inclusive, right? But not necessarily. Um, you know, like anarchy is extremely decentralized, right? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's worth thinking about decentralization as not like good or bad, but just like as an is statement. It, it just, right, right. It, it is a little bit more dispersed and that comes yep. with costs and benefits. And do you individually need a decentralized service or do you actually kind of prefer the centralized service? Because I would I would reckon a lot of people that are in crypto um, who are, you know, they may be doing it for whatever speculative reasons, but they probably use a lot of decentralized services, uh, sorry, a lot of centralized, centralized services yeah. in their life on a day-to-day -day basis and are totally fine with it yeah, because there are easier. really, it makes it easier. And there's a lot of really useful efficiency gains from being centralized. Um, so, you know, I think that is a very important part of the crypto hype that is worth, I don't know about discarding, because I do think, like, like you mentioned, decentralization can have real value in certain situations. Like if you're uh, like a dissident in a country with an oppressive regime, that's a really good application of decentralization. But if you are a person in a developed democratic nation and you, know, you already use centralized services for 90% of your life, decentralizing 10% of your life is probably just creating a barrier for yourself. All right, last two terms I was throwing at you, stablecoin and tethercoin. What, what do those mean? So stablecoins are a, also kind of an umbrella term. Generally what they mean is it's a cryptocurrency which is pegged one-to-one -to, -one to a traditional currency. Usually it's the dollar. So the best known one is tether that you mentioned. Tether says very clearly, every tether is worth one US dollar. Now, there's a question, is it, right? Is that actually true? <laughs> and there has been a bunch, a whole bunch of gamesmanship and lawsuits and blah, blah, blah. Um, the gist is that you're- who, Let theory, me interrupt you for a second. Who yes. created Tether or who manages Tether? Is that a US government thing? If it's pegged directly to the US dollar? No, it's a private no. company. It's, okay. it's a private company that manages this peg. And okay. this private company that manages Tether specifically has- Quite a checkered history, um, and, <laughs> Excellent. and they, they, they've been they've paid fines to the government. They've been sued. It's a whole mess. The, in, let me start with the theory though, because I think the theory is like perfectly comprehensible, which okay. is that Bitcoin and Ethereum and a lot of these other cryptocurrencies are extremely volatile. So let's come up with a way for a cryptocurrency to preserve value in some way. So the idea here is that I'm going to give you one stable coin, you know, uh, one, one meta averse coin, and it's going to be worth $1. And I'm going to guarantee it's worth $1 by having a bank account so that every single metaverse stable coin that I issue is backed up by a single dollar in my bank account. 
And whenever anyone wants to redeem the stable coin, they can just come to me. I'll give them $1 from the bank account that I saved for them. They get the dollar. They give me the coin. We're great. Right. Now, where that goes wrong is that the companies that run the stable coins need to make money somehow. And just exchanging one stable coin for $1 makes you $0. Right. So how do they make money? One way they do that is they use the reserves to back up their stable coins. They invest that money into assets that have uh, that return money and that have a return on them. So, you know, you can imagine they invest it in like treasury bonds, which are pretty close to cash, and you can pretty much exchange them for a dollar. But what happens when they start to go a little bit outside of those boundaries? They go, okay, it starts with treasury bonds, but then you're doing corporate debt. Maybe you're doing Chinese corporate debt. Uh, you know, maybe you're getting, you're getting riskier and riskier. Uh, maybe you buy El Salvador's Bitcoin bond, like who, who knows? You can get as crazy as you want. And there just is not a lot of regulation here. That, that's the issue. Um, okay. Some of these stablecoin companies have been sued for committing fraud, but they've been sued under kind of the general fraud laws rather than a specific law having to do with the way that stablecoins are supposed to be uh, managed. And, you know, what is, I give you a, a dollar for every dollar I owe you called? I mean, that's called a bank usually. Right. That's that's a, that's a bank deposit. <laughs> right. And anyone that has studied any financial history at all knows that banks have been prone to completely melting down at points in history um, because, you know, it, it's, it's a risky business. They have to manage tons of money going in, tons of money going out. And if everyone tries to claim their money at the same time, you're going to have a run on the bank and everything goes, you know, everything yeah. collapses. Um, so that has not happened yet in stablecoins. There has been no run on the stablecoin, but a lot of smart people think it could happen. Uh, and. You know, I, I'm a little less freaked out by these stable coins than I think uh, some of the most alarmed people. But I would say that this is an unregulated private asset that could go to zero at any point with a warning. Um, and what's preventing that? Well, it's how much you trust the company. Trust. We're back to trust. We're back to trust. Today, yeah. I'm speaking with Ethan Wu. Ethan is a financial reporter at Financial Times, FT.com, and he's the co-author of Unhedged, their weekday newsletter covering finance and markets. Uh, Ethan, prior to joining FT, you wrote for a variety of different outlets, Brookings Institution, some other places. And uh, before that, or maybe during some of that, you studied at Cornell and did some work on digital currencies and around central bank digital currencies. Want to get into that a little bit, because I frankly don't understand what a central bank is, let alone digital currency. And I'm not going to ask you to explain, although you're doing a magnificent job of explaining everything so far. So thank you. Not going to ask you to go too deep into that if you don't want to. But I am curious about, you know, what, what the difference is between a digital currency and a cryptocurrency, you know, both theoretically, but also kind of in practical terms as we look towards what seems like, you know, it doesn't seem like cryptocurrencies are going to go away anytime soon, even if, as we were discussing, the ultimate utility to, you know, somebody like me isn't going to replace my credit card anytime soon. Uh, but what, what's a digital currency? And as much as you, you'd like to, you know, maybe go into some of your work um, researching digital currencies and central banks. Yeah, the difference between cryptocurrencies and digital currencies is a little bit fickle and you can cut it a million different ways. Okay. I would say on the on the consumer end, on the person that's just holding some kind of digital asset, it's really quite similar. You're just going to have some amount of money in, in your, your wallet on your phone or on your computer. Um, but central bank digital currencies is where I think you get a much sharper distinction. And okay. the distinction here is this is a digital currency that is created by the central bank. So basically the government, um, a branch of the government. 
And so this is essentially digital cash. Now, these have been rolled out in some places in the world. It was rolled out in the Bahamas last year, and there are plans to launch it in China. I think there have been some pilot projects in China, and it's coming out, uh, I think, in full either 2023 or 2024. Um, and basically, every central bank around the world, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank, um, are doing very intensive research on whether they should launch a central bank digital currency, essentially just digital cash. And I think there's a lot of conversation around these technologies now because the design, no one has settled on what the universal design of a central bank digital currency should be. Now, there's a pretty universal design for cash. It's a piece of paper. It's got certain security features, so you can't do counterfeiting easily. And right. we all accept those, that we can exchange those. Right. Um, central bank digital currencies, because they're technology and not just paper, have a lot more design considerations that you have to think about when you are creating one. So for example, should the government be able to track a central bank digital currency or not? You can create two versions, one version that's trackable by the government and one that's not. And it, ultimately it's a political question about the value of privacy. Uh, you can imagine an argument that goes like, I don't want the government to be able to trace the central bank digital currency to prevent you know, money laundering and organized crime and things like that. Or you could say, it's a little dystopian to, to think about a government that's able to trace any cash transaction yeah. down to the yeah. to penny, right? That's scary. Um, and which way, you know, I, I, I'm I, buy my donut, not, I buy my donuts in cash because I don't want anybody to know when I go on donut binges, you know, it's, yeah. I buy the right. Or I mean, and you can think about, you know, governments are big institutions that mess up. And yeah. you can imagine uh, a lot of ways that, you know, uh, down to the penny tracking of digital cash uh, could go really, really quite horribly wrong. Um, yeah. You know, we've seen what, what happened with the, with the NSA uh, and, and with, with Edward Snowden. I mean, you know, God knows what, what could happen with this sort of data. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not going to settle that debate, but that, that's one that's out there. And I think it's really important that we're having that conversation now about what we want a central bank digital currency to look like, because it does look like that, even though it does feel a little distant to an ordinary person these days. I, I should say this is a very, very serious research effort that is being taken 100% seriously by basically every central banker across the world. And it's coming to China. It's already in several developing countries. And we're going to be talking about this a lot more in two to three years. And I think it'd be good if we start talking about it now. What's the, um, this is a naive question, but what is the upside to launching a centralized digital currency just that it's, it's cheaper and more efficient than managing physical currency? Well, there's a couple of, of uh, benefits that, that you can think about. One is that um, it, it may make remittances easier. That's, I think, a, a key point, which is that, you know, if you have family that lives abroad, especially in, in a poorer country, a lot of people, especially migrants, will send money back to their relatives. And this is a, a very significant source of income for a lot of right. uh, developing countries. Sometimes it's like, it's like a, a quarter of GDP, a third of GDP. It's, it's a huge amount of money for uh, some poor countries around the world. And with kind of an official digital currency, you can imagine governments building a system where remittances could travel across the world for uh, tiny fees or no fees at all. Whereas now you need to go to Western Union and you pay a really fat chunk of fees. And yep. It's quite expensive. And these are people that are not making a lot of money anyway. Right. Um, so you, so that's, that's one, I think, potential benefit is that it could, um, it, it could improve the accessibility of remittances uh, for some of the world's poorest people. Um, another possible upside is it could, this is a bit of a nerdy one, but it could improve the efficacy of monetary policy. Um, and the, you know, I won't go too much into the details there, but the, the general idea is that um, you could make cash 
yield a negative interest rate. So you actually lose money from holding cash. And this would be an, an extreme way for central banks to discourage people from holding cash, which currently they don't have. Currently cash yields 0%. But what if your cash yielded negative 1% and you lose 1% a year on your cash? Now that sounds a little scary. And maybe that's something that you know we should be against if, if that sounds scary. But from a central bank perspective, that's actually a very useful tool because you can push people out of cash and into other things like stocks um, and into other things like, uh, uh, like, like mortgages and like credit. You can push them into other asset classes that might be able to stimulate the, the, the economy. Um, so that's one conversation. And I, I think um, that point gets brought up a lot among central bankers because, you know, central bankers. But I think that that's the kind of point where when you articulate that to like an ordinary person, they're like, wait, what? My cash yield is negative 1%. What are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's why I think we should talk a little bit more about, about this subject, because it's being had at the highest levels of like government, academia, think tanks, but not by ordinary people to whom you probably should be able to explain, you know, why should my cash yield negative 1% again? Right, right. And the idea there is just that if, I, if I've got cash stuck under my mattress, it's not doing anything active to help the broader economy grow. But if I'm incentivized to put that cash into something then theoretically it will help the broader economy grow because it's being actively put to use along those lines. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. If I can can grok it, then there's, there's hope for other people too. Believe me. Yes. (laughs) There are very complicated, like theoretical accounts of how this works, but I think the very broad strokes is exactly what you just Okay, cool. All right. Let's end by talking about some hacks here. Um, Last week, as we record this uh, first week of April, Last week, there was, I think this this broke the record, which was just set previously not too long ago, for the biggest blockchain-related heist. Um, the Ronin network, which is the bridge that underpins Axie Infinity, was hacked for a grand total of somewhere north of 600 million US dollars worth of assets, crypto assets. Uh, and not too long before this, there was the wormhole hack, which was a little bit less, but but same, same, you know, over half a billion dollars, eye popping numbers that that make people like me think, oh, I should start a podcast talking about this stuff. Um, I've got we were talking about this before we hit record. I've got a couple of questions, but but more so, you know, I want to get back into some of the stuff you were talking about earlier. But my first question is when when there's a, a $600 million heist from a blockchain, like, is that real money? I mean, is that really $600 million was, was stolen? Uh, and then I want to get into a little bit about, you know, how this happens and why this keeps happening and, and the, the technical issues and, and other things kind of underpinning it. But I guess kind of first things first, like, I don't know, when you saw the news that came out that, so Axie Infinity is this hugely popular, and this actually, when you were talking about remittances and, you know, people moving to a place like the U.S. to earn money and send it back to family in, in less developed nations, you know, Axie Infinity is this huge play-to-earn game. It's it's massively popular in the Philippines, I believe, and, and maybe some other places as well. And it's basically, you know, people are playing this, quote, game where they're doing all these digital things that earn them uh, cryptocurrency payouts, I guess. Um, and then that kind of feeds into the people who, you know, actually own the company that runs the game, making more money off of this labor in, in different ways, whatever. But when you see a headline like this, like, do you react the way that I do, which is like, oh man, $600 million just got stolen. 
or is that actually not really what's going on? It's not quite what's going on. It's not $600 million out of, you know, like if someone stole 600 million out of Jeff Bezos's checking account, that would actually be 600 million US dollars. In this case, it's 600. And in a lot of these hacks, it's 300 million, 600 billion of cryptocurrency at current market prices, which is similar, but not exactly the same thing. And, you know, one reason why it's different is that these cryptocurrency values fluctuate quite a lot. And so, you know, 600 billion today could be worth 300 million tomorrow. Uh, And the other thing is that a lot of the- (laughs) It's going to be worth the moon tomorrow, Ethan. Come on, man. We're all going to- Yeah. I I mean, listen, no, that's the other thing is like 600 million today could be worth, you know, like 5 billion tomorrow. It could, yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's not exactly the same. And I think there, there are a lot of critiques of using these uh, big eye-popping numbers headlines because they're a little bit misleading, frankly. Um, and also in a lot of these hacks, uh, the people that lose money get compensated. And right. the reason they get compensated is that venture capitalists fund the crypto companies that get hacked and they don't want to see their investments go to zero. So they come in and they say, hey, we're going to give you all the money that was stolen back Basically, as a little bit as a little bit of a write-off, and just sort of say, "Hey, listen, no harm, no foul. You did your best. You got hacked. It happens. Take our money." And they have the cash to do that, and these crypto companies are happy to accept. And so they they say mea culpa and they move on. Um, you know, it's I, funny. I was going to make a snarky comment about that, and then I remembered the example I brought up ten minutes ago about my credit card points being dra- being drained. And for all I know, that was at least in part because I was using a bad password. I don't know if I was, but you know, it could have been somehow I got socially engineered, whatever. And I got to make a couple from my bank. They put my points back in. So, you know, I'll, I'll reserve my snarky comments, but sorry. I mean, the, the point I was making earlier, and we were talking about decentralization, is that even for these quite sophisticated crypto technology companies that hire, you know, MIT grads and, and Caltech grads to, to work for their company, Listen, it's it's a tough world out there, and you're up against the whole world of crypto hackers, of which there are many, many, many. Yes. And even a lot of these very well-established, well-funded companies get hacked for quite large sums. So you know, it's um, the crypto hacking anarchy is both for everyday consumers as well as some of the most sophisticated firms. Um, I do want to say one thing about about Axie Infinity though that, that you brought up that it's this kind of a, a play to earn game. This, I think, is another example of where people assume something that uh, sounds crypto native is not actually crypto native. So, you know, when I was growing up, I used to play a video game called RuneScape. And, you know, RuneScape is, is the kind of game you can put in, you know, a thousand hours and you're you know not even half done with the game. Yeah. Uh, it's a yeah. very laborious game. So there has developed there developed this uh, kind of black economy in RuneScape where um, people would put in real labor to farm gold within the game and then sell it to someone for real life dollars. Yeah. And um, this became, and I think, I believe still is, uh, a serious profession for a number of people in Venezuela, um, where in Venezuela, the currency has collapsed because of US sanctions and, and because of volatility of the oil price. And so some people in Venezuela who do have perfectly good internet connections play RuneScape 12 hours a day, and they sell RuneScape gold for US dollars, which is more right. stable than, uh, you know, than their home currency. That required zero crypto. Absolutely none. And it's the exact same system. Yep. Um, and so that this is, I think, is actually is a cool game. Um, it does a very high barriers to entry, but I think it, it's kind of an example of crypto reinventing the wheel a little bit. Um, there are elements of the game that are crypto specific, but if your goal is to play a fun game, 
<laughs> you know, I, I like I, I don't know if I necessarily recommend this as a game. Right. Um, right. And you know, it's also I, I know the, the little I know about things like this, not to interrupt you, but you know, my my one of my kids, my older kid is well, both my kids are into gaming. My older one will talk about games that you have to grind on. And just yeah. that word to me is kind of like, how is that fun? How is that playing a game? But you know, it's well, there, there are, so I mean I should say there are people that they get psychological pleasure from grinding these games. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I can kind of empathize with it. It's a bit of it's a world outside of your world where you can do work that is you know easy on your body, it's low stakes, you have a crappy day at work, no one cares, you know, it's and and they enjoy the rewards and it's fun for them, it's relaxing. I can get all that. Yeah. Um, and then for some people, it's an income method, like in a country where yeah, the currency right. no, is, it's, uh, is it's very unstable. Yep. Yeah. But um, I think the, the the general point was just that you know you don't need crypto for something like play to earn. And yeah. there's a lot of stuff like that where someone took an idea that existed in kind of the centralized world and said, well, let's slap some crypto paint on it and call it a day, um, and we'll introduce a couple of crypto features. And you know that's fine. I have no issue with someone doing that. But there's a, if you're again just an everyday person, you should ask yourself, you know. Am I getting into this because I actually like it? Because I actually enjoy the features that are specific to crypto? Uh, or would I be just as happy, if not happier, doing the equivalent in centralized world where things might work a little bit more smoothly? Yeah. And I mean, it's hard when you've got Larry David or Matt Damon telling you, you know, you're going to miss out if you don't get on the crypto train. So it's, uh, the, I mean, these are real. I, I'm joking, but it's real, right? We all have our things that we get. Hype draws us into and and then all of a sudden you're, you're you know you're down a rabbit hole financially emotionally you know spending your time on it whatever it is so yeah uh, before I let you get out of here Ethan um, is there kind of a I don't know I'm gonna put you on the spot for a takeaway but things that kind of a um, a non finance industry professional who is interested in this space, whether they've invested or whether they're a, you know, a business person or an entrepreneur or just an observer who kind of wants to keep an eye on cryptocurrencies and, and where, where the, the idea as a whole might be headed. Some indicators, some things that you would recommend folks kind of keep an eye on other, of course, than you know, following uh, Unhedged and the rest of your work over at FT. Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say, I think FT.com is a, is a great place to read on crypto. I think uh, the FT reporters that, that cover this on a daily basis do a great job of writing kind of non-sensationalist coverage of the space, which I think is very important because yes. there are exciting things that are happening. I think there is uh, innovation there, but I don't think that innovation is such that people should just go buy Bitcoin right now. Um, what I would say is, you know, read news skeptically about this space. And, you know, what I mean by that is... This is a space that is filled with scams, but also has is filled with a lot of potential. And as a journalist, I'll say that journalists struggle to cover that in a clear-eyed way because you're on deadline, you're doing things on a day-to-day basis, you got to just get stuff out, and you also need to get your story read. So it has to be a little bit played up yeah. for the audience. Um, media has these kind of structural incentives where you might not get exactly the right calibration of hype level and how excited you should be and how interested you should be from, you know, reading the headline, especially on a super crypto skeptical site or a super crypto happy site. Um, I would just take, you know, question the source of of what you're reading is, I think what I would say, you know, what um, are the people that are saying that this is a great investment to, you know, is this a, so a person who maybe has a monetary incentive to say that, or has been prone to hype before, just, I, I would just be careful with uh, kind of the information that, that one consumes about this space. 
At the same time, though, you know, I think if there are, if in the next couple of years, there are services that do actually look interesting for their own service, not because they have the word crypto or blockchain or Web3 on it, I think that's a perfectly legitimate thing to get excited about if that's something that appeals to you for its intrinsic properties. Um, and, you know, I think people can feel very safe that they have, they're not missing a trend if they just go along in their lives and pay some, you know, semi-distant attention to the space without having to throw the entire 401k at, you know, putting in Bitcoin or whatever. Excellent. All right, Ethan, for folks who want to follow your work, obviously FT.com and Unhedged, uh, we've referenced a few times. Are you active on social media? Is there somewhere else you would point to for folks who want to uh, track your efforts in particular? Uh, FT.com slash unhedged and at Ethan Y. Wu on Twitter. Excellent. Well, again, Ethan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you coming on and uh, just dropping a whole lot of knowledge on us today. Thanks, Noah. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Metaverse Podcast. Uh, Again, my thanks to Ethan Wu. If you stuck around for the whole conversation, you know uh, we got to have him back on the show in the future. Uh, A great blend of highly knowledgeable about what he does and uh, very listenable, very articulate, but very relatable. And so greatly appreciate Ethan taking the time to come on and explain how some of the financial... Uh, machinery underpinning currency and digital currency and cryptocurrencies actually works and what it means, uh, not just to the crypto whales dropping big speculative investments into the market, but into uh, folks more like you and me. Well, I don't know who you are, but more like me uh, who are interested in this stuff, maybe want to get involved, but want to understand a little more about how it works first. We'll be back next Tuesday with another episode of Metaverse. In the meantime, leave a rating, leave a review, share an episode with a friend. Uh, I posted last week to the Substack, which you can view at metaverse.substack.com. You can also sign up and get the posts and new podcast episodes delivered to your email inbox. Uh, But I posted a short post called Mapping the Metaverse that lays out our first month of episodes. Happy birthday to us. It's been just over a month. We're all going to make it. Uh, That lists the first, uh, I think it was the first eight, first seven episodes rather, not including this one, and breaks them out according to uh, topic area. So if you want to dive into the archives, get a better taste of what is going on in the metaverse, talk to some of the people building it and observing and critiquing it, Head to the Substack, look for the post called Mapping the Metaverse, and it will give you a guide to all of the episodes that are up there so far. Also, I have been playing around with an app, a new platform called Wisdom. You can download the app for iOS or Android. It's an audio platform that allows people to give talks, but also host guests on the talks and have two-way conversations. I have only posted a couple of talks to Wisdom, but you can uh, find me through my name, Noah Kravitz. Interesting platform, and uh, I look forward to doing a little bit more on there, kind of more impromptu, off-the-cuff talks without guests or maybe guests from the platform. So you can check that out as well. In the meantime, my name is Noah Kravitz. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Metaverse. Take care.